One of the deepest pains in life is the pain of being misunderstood by others. And yet, interestingly, some of the greatest individuals who have ever lived have been misunderstood. Recognizing how some of history's most accomplished people have been misunderstood, at least at some point in their lives. It was Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American essayist and philosopher, who once remarked, he said, to be great is to be misunderstood. To be great is to be misunderstood. Well, if being misunderstood is a mark of greatness, then the Apostle Paul would have to be considered one of the greatest men to have ever lived, because no Christian leader has been more misunderstood than the Apostle Paul. And this morning, as we resume our study of the book of Acts, we're going to see an illustration of just how misjudged and how misunderstood Paul was, because our study today brings us to the second part of Acts chapter 21, which is about Paul's arrest in the city of Jerusalem. And as we will discover, it was based on a complete misinterpretation of him, who he was and what he actually taught. In fact, ever since Paul stated in Acts 20, in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, that he was determined to go to Jerusalem in spite of the fact that he knew he was going to suffer there. Ever since he said that, he encountered nothing but misunderstanding by several different groups of people. Warren Wiersbe, in his very excellent little commentary on the book of Acts, points out just how these different groups of people misunderstood Paul. First ones who misunderstood the apostle in terms of his heart for ministry were believers in the city of Tyre. You'll recall Paul came to that city on his way to Jerusalem. He had never met the believers there. They were new to him. He was new to them. But when they learned of his plans to travel to Jerusalem, they tried to persuade him not to go there. We read in Acts 21.4, after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Second group of people who misunderstood Paul and his determination to go to Jerusalem were actually his friends, men who he knew well, but who desperately tried to get him to change his mind and to cancel his trip. And so we read in Acts 21, starting in verse 10, as we were staying there for some days, there would be Caesarea. They were staying at the home of Philip. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, Luke said, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And as we saw last Sunday, the third group of people who misunderstood Paul in connection with his visit to Jerusalem were the very people that he had come to the city to help, namely the members of the Jerusalem church. I remind you that the reason that Paul traveled to Jerusalem in the first place was to bring an offering from some Gentile churches to the Jewish church, the Jerusalem church, for the purpose of demonstrating the love and the unity that existed between them as brethren in Christ. However, once Paul arrived in Jerusalem, he was informed by James and all the elders that many of the members of their church had been misinformed about him and his teaching and had foolishly believed lies told to them by false teachers known elsewhere as Judaizers, men who had falsely accused the Apostle Paul of teaching Jewish people to abandon the ceremonial laws prescribed by Moses. Here's what James told Paul in Acts 21. We break in in the middle of verse 20. He said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Now, after explaining to Paul about how misinformed their congregation was about him and his teaching, James and the elders tell him that a potentially serious problem has arisen. It's on their hands and they're concerned about it. And they've come up with a plan to try to remedy this potential problem. 
Verses 22 through 24 say this. They said, what then is to be done? They'll certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there's nothing to the things which they've been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. So, Fearing that Paul's presence in Jerusalem might cause an uproar in the church, might cause a serious problem with division in this church because the congregation, for the most part at least, believed that Paul was teaching Jewish people to forsake the ceremonial laws laid down by Moses. And so they make a proposal. They have a plan already conceived and they run it by Paul that they said, Paul should demonstrate that he's not opposed to these ceremonial laws, and here's how they propose he do this. They said, we have four Jewish men who have undertaken a Nazarite vow. We want you to take them into the temple complex in order to complete their vows with a special hair-shaving ceremony. Now, in addition, before entering the temple, they want Paul also to undergo a purification ritual with these men. And they also want Paul to pay for the expenses connected to all of this, which involve paying for the haircutting ceremony as well as the sacrifices, animal sacrifices that these men were required to offer. Now, as I just said, the purpose of all of this, this proposal by James and all the elders, was to demonstrate to their congregation Just how wrong the Judaizers were in what they said about Paul. Because far from teaching Jewish people to forsake the ceremonial laws, they want to demonstrate by Paul doing this, that Paul actually practiced these laws himself. And Paul, for the sake of unity, knowing that there's no command to not do these laws or to do them, they're now liberty issues, he knows that. And so for the sake of unity and to try to lay these false accusations to rest, Paul agrees to their proposal. But it's while Paul is in the process of completing this purification ritual in the temple, which apparently took seven days, he's seized by a crowd of unbelieving Jewish people who try to kill him, only to be rescued by some Roman soldiers who initially think the worst of him, and therefore they bind him and place him under arrest, just as the Holy Spirit predicted and prophesied would take place. Now, before we get into our study today about Paul being arrested in Jerusalem, we need to understand a couple of things that will help to enhance your comprehension of these verses. First of all, it's important to understand that this passage isn't merely an interesting and dramatic story. I mean, it is interesting, it is dramatic, but it's not only that. See, Luke, the inspired writer of Acts, doesn't give interesting stories for the sake of giving interesting stories. With Luke, there's always a theological point. There's always a theological message. There's always a theological lesson and instruction. And what he does is he combines these messages theologically with his historical narrative so that there's theology and there's history. And that's certainly the case with what he tells us about how Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. As always, there is an important message that Luke has for us, and we'll see that very shortly, very soon. Secondly, although Satan isn't mentioned by name in these verses, it's obvious that he was the one behind Paul's arrest. Because being the murderer and the liar that Jesus described him to be, Satan's objective was to destroy Paul and his bold witness for Christ by lying about him so that the crowd would become so angry with Paul that they would actually want to kill him. And that It's exactly what happened. If you notice, if you look at your Bibles in verse 31, the beginning, it says, while they were seeking to kill him. So that was their goal, and that was Satan's goal. But God didn't allow Paul to be killed. Instead, he used the Roman soldiers to rescue him. However, in spite of Satan's failure at putting Paul to death, what we discover in this passage is the evil one's activity in trying to destroy the apostle and the role that misunderstanding played in all of this. See, as we read about what led to Paul's arrest, 
we see that like everything else connected with his visit to Jerusalem, there is again more misunderstanding about this great man. And here's what makes this particular misunderstanding and these particular attacks on Paul so significant and so relevant for us. It's because the very things that Paul was misunderstood about and was falsely accused of, these are some of the very same things that we as believers are still being misunderstood about and are still being erroneously accused of. So, far from being simply a remote history lesson, the story of Paul's arrest is very practical, it's very beneficial for us, very helpful, because it reveals to us some of Satan's devices in raising up false accusations against God's people, accusations that all of us need to be aware of, because it's very likely that at some point you are going to be the target of these very same accusations, if not exactly like Paul, certainly in principle. And so, with this as our background, we're now ready to, to get into the text and discover how Satan tried to silence Paul by using misinformation and misunderstanding about him. And Luke, as he tells us the story of Paul being arrested, and he reveals three ways that Satan tried to destroy the Apostle Paul, with the first one being, number one, by slanderous lies against him. By slanderous lies against him. Verse 27 says this, When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowds and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, as Luke continues telling us the story of Paul's visit to Jerusalem, he tells us that after the seven-day purification ritual from defilement was almost over, a ritual that took place in the temple, Paul was spotted by some of his old enemies, namely Jewish unbelievers from Asia, meaning Asia Minor, who were in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. Paul said he was rushing to get to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. And apparently he made it. And so you have these Jews from all over the empire there as well. And some of these Jews were Asian Jews, were Jews from the province of Asia. Now, it's very likely that these Jewish people from Asia were from the city of Ephesus because we know that was the capital of the province of Asia and also because in verse 29 we read that they recognized Paul's Gentile Greek friend Trophimus who was from Ephesus and if that's the case then these are the same people who hated Paul and despised the gospel message during his time his three years in the city of Ephesus I take you back to Acts 19 Verses 8 and 9. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now this is when Paul first set foot in Ephesus. He goes into the synagogue, he's preaching Jesus for three months, and we read, But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. In fact, These Jewish people, folks, were so antagonistic towards Paul that in his farewell address to the elders from Ephesus, the apostle stated that the Jewish people were a constant source of trials to him during the three years he was in Ephesus. We read Acts 20. Verses 18 and 19. You yourselves know, he told them, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and note this, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And now, upon seeing their adversary, the Apostle Paul, in the temple in Jerusalem, these Jewish people from Ephesus, they grabbed hold of him and they began to stir up 
the crowd of worshipers by seeking them to come to their aid to subdue this man because he's the one, they said, who preaches everywhere against our people, against the law of Moses, and against this holy place, meaning the temple. Now notice that in their accusations, they actually make three specific accusations against Paul, and each of these accusations were absolutely false. First of all, they stated that he was against our people, meaning they were accusing Paul of being anti-Jewish, of what we would call today an anti-Semite, someone who is an enemy of the Jewish people, who hates the Jewish people. And they no doubt thought this way because they believed that in Paul's teaching that Jewish people didn't have to obey the Mosaic law for salvation, they've never had to obey the Mosaic law for salvation, but Paul proclaimed that they assumed that he preaching like this, was an enemy of the Jewish people. Nothing could be further from the truth. Paul loved the Jewish people to such an extent, with such depth, that though they gave him a hard time, and though they attacked him, and though they said terrible things about him, he said at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 that if it were possible, he would go to hell if that would result in Israel being saved. Paul said in Romans 9, 1 through 3, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. And he had to say this because what he's about to say, people would say, oh, you must be lying. Nobody could believe this. Paul said, no, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsman according to the flesh. Now, it is not possible that one could take the place other than Christ of someone and be judged in their place. But Paul was saying that if it were possible, he would go to hell if that would result in the salvation of the people of Israel. What depth, what love. So, absolutely false accusation that here's a man who's opposed to us. Secondly, they accused Paul of preaching against the law. No doubt, the same accusation leveled against him by the Judaizers that he taught Jewish people to forsake the ceremonial laws. Now, this obviously was a false accusation, since the very reason that Paul was at the temple at this time was for the purpose of obeying the ceremonial laws of ritual purification. And Paul never taught that the ceremonial laws, that they couldn't obey them. He just put them in a different category. There were now liberty issues. Third accusation made against Paul was that he preaches against this holy place that is the temple. No doubt because Paul didn't revere the temple as the sole location of God's dwelling on earth and he kept insisting that God now dwells in those who place their trust in Christ for salvation. But to support their accusation that Paul was anti-temple, they claimed that he brought a Greek Gentile into an area of the temple where Gentiles were forbidden. And by doing so, they said he defiled the temple. And the reason, folks, that they believed this is that previously they had seen Trophimus, a Gentile believer, a resident from the city of Ephesus. They had seen him with Paul in the city, and they just made an assumption, a wrong assumption, that the apostle must have brought him into the temple. It wasn't the case at all. Now, like all of these accusations made by the Jewish people, this one was false too. As I said, they just jumped to the conclusion that Paul had brought this man into the forbidden area of the temple. That was not the case. In fact, it would have made no sense for Paul to have done this. One Bible scholar explained why this charge was so ridiculous. He said, that charge was absurd. While taking part in a, in a purification rite, Paul would hardly defile the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. And to do so, Paul would have had to bring Trophimus past the court of the Gentiles where Gentiles were permitted. So there was a, a section in the temple complex where Gentiles were allowed to go, but they could not go beyond that. The writer continues, that would have cost Trophimus his life since the Romans allowed the Jews to execute any Gentile who entered there, even Roman citizens. An inscription from the temple found in 1935 solemnly warns, and I quote, No Gentile shall enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple, and whoever is caught shall be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. 
The writer continues, Paul would never have so endangered his friend's life, and if the Asian Jews had really seen Trophimus there, why have they not seized him then and executed him? Now, folks, every one, as I said, every one of these accusations is absolutely false and were wrong. And they were slanderous lies inspired by Satan, who is the father of lies. But what these lies against Paul reveal is that one of the tactics, one of the strategies, one of the devices, techniques used by the devil is to slander God's servants by using people to lie about them. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he said concerning the devil, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his schemes. And one of these schemes that we know Satan is an expert at, he's been doing this for years, is spreading lies about Christians. Been doing this for thousands of years and he continues to do this today. But we assume that it would only be non-Christians who he would use to do this. But that's not the case. Because it's not only unbelievers who are guilty of being duped by Satan into slandering Christians, but oftentimes Christians are actually guilty of slandering one another with lies. We do it towards our brethren. This happens every day on social media where Christians, because they don't have to look someone in the eye, they tend to be emboldened to post accusatory statements about other believers that cannot be substantiated. They would never say these things to their face, but they're very bold in writing about them. And sadly, the Christian community, they read these baseless, slanderous lies, and they tend to believe them, even though they're false and they're completely unfounded. And those who post these slanderous lies and those who believe them and spread these errors of false misinformation about someone else are unwittingly doing the work of Satan by attacking and destroying the credibility and the testimony of God's servants. That's the world that we live in. Writing about the damage done by slanderous hearsay, Bible teacher Kent Hughes tells this very interesting story. He writes, in an eastern land, a woman repeated a bit of gossip about a neighbor, and within a short time, the whole town knew the story. The slandered person was deeply hurt and most unhappy. But when the lady responsible for spreading the rumor learned that it was completely untrue, she went to a very wise old sage to find out what she could do to repair the damage. After listening to her problem, he said, go to the marketplace, purchase a fowl, and have it killed. Then, on your way home, pluck its feathers one by one and drop them along the path. Though surprised by this unusual advice, the woman did as she was told. The next day, she informed the man that she had done as instructed. Now, go and collect all those feathers and bring them back to me, the sage said. The lady followed the same path, but to her dismay, the wind had blown all the feathers away. After searching all day long, she returned with only two or three in hand. You see, said the old wise man, it's easy to drop them, but impossible to bring them all back. Likewise, it does not take much to spread a false rumor, but you can never completely undo the wrong. And he's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. So, listen, don't let Satan use you to slander a brother or a sister in Christ. If you have a problem, if you have a problem with something you've heard about a fellow believer, what they did, what they said, then go to them privately and ask them face-to-face for the facts. Don't make assumptions and don't post slanderous, unsubstantiated, false information on Facebook or any other social media outlet. It's just wrong. And if you've been the victim of a slanderous lie, then what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to do exactly what the Word of God tells you to do in those cases. And what is that? Well, it's two things. First of all, if you're falsely accused of something, then you do what Jesus did when he was falsely accused. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. And so here's the example we follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself, and this is the key, 
He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, don't waste your time trying to defend yourself. Don't get into going back and forth trying to defend and address these things. Simply entrust yourself to God who knows all the details and all the facts about your situation. Secondly, secondly, we read in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Now Peter here says that if you've been slandered as an evildoer, live in such a godly manner that those who have slandered you will see how wrong they are. You're not like this at all. And by observing your godly behavior and your good deeds, some of them will come to faith in Christ and bring glory to God when Jesus returns. See, the background of Peter's statement is that the early Christians who he was writing to, they were falsely accused of all kinds of evil behavior. They were accused of being rebellious against the Roman government because their first allegiance was to Christ. They were accused of being atheists because they would not bow down and worship Caesar. They were accused of being cannibals because they spoke of eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And they were accused of being immoral, incestuous, because they spoke so often of loving one another as brothers and sisters. But in all of these slanders, Peter instructs them to focus on godly living in order to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So if you're guilty of slandering another Christian, of posting something on social media that you suppose is true, but in reality, you don't really know the facts. You don't have it right, and your accusations cannot be substantiated. Then you have to repent before God, and you have to ask those who you have slandered to forgive you. That is a grievous sin. And if you're the one who has been slandered, then don't waste your time trying to defend yourself. You you can never get out of the thickness of that. It just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Just focus on living in obedience to God to prove that these accusations are false, that they're wrong. So, the first way that Satan tried to destroy Paul was by slanderous lies, accusing the apostle of things that he just wasn't guilty of at all. But sadly, those who heard those lies that day... They believed them, and as a result, they sprang into action, and in doing so, they unknowingly were used by Satan as he deployed a second way to try to destroy Paul, and that was by, number two, attempting to kill him. We read in verse 30, Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. After hearing the Jews from Asia cry aloud these accusations against Paul and ask for help from those who were within earshot, Luke tells us that all the city was aroused. They were provoked by this so that from all directions people just came running to where they had grabbed hold of Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and immediately they shut the doors behind them, apparently because they didn't want to defile the temple since they were intent on murdering Paul right there on the spot. And we know this because we read this in the next verse, verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him. So that was their goal. Having already told us about Satan's slanderous lies concerning Paul, Luke now says that Satan's next tactic was to murder Paul, which only makes sense because remember Jesus called the devil not only a liar, he said he was what? A murderer as well. We read at the beginning of verse 31 that this frenzied mob of angry people were seeking to kill Paul, meaning they were trying to physically beat the man to death. But God intervened so that Paul's life was spared by some Roman soldiers coming to his rescue. And thus we read in verses 31 and 32, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. As this mob of people 
were pounding Paul with their fists, hoping to just put an end to his life right then and there, some Roman soldiers who were stationed at the fortress Antonio, which overlooked the temple complex, they saw what was going on, and so they went and reported it to the commander in charge. Now the commander, known as the military tribune, then took with him some soldiers and couple of centurions and rushing down to where the riot was taking place they rescued Paul from certain death because when the people saw the commander and the soldiers they immediately stopped beating Paul why because had they continued they would have been the ones who were arrested now later in Acts 23 verse 26 we learn that the name of this commanding officer this military tribune was a man by the name of Claudius Lysias and when the governor was not in Jerusalem this man Lysias became the highest ranking Roman official in the city and his job was to keep order in the city that was his primary job keep everything orderly this is why we read that he took with him soldiers and two centurions to squash this riot. Now, the fact that Lysias took two centurions would seem to indicate that he had 200 soldiers with him since one centurion was in charge of 100 soldiers and thus the name centurion like century 100. And together, all of these soldiers, they now rush down to where the crowd has gathered where they see all these people beating on Paul, trying to kill him with their bare hands, and they come to Paul's rescue. So, what do we learn from this? Well, we learn that Satan, who by nature is a murderer, had as his goal the murder of the Apostle Paul. He wanted Paul silenced, he wanted Paul eliminated as an ambassador for Christ, and so he sought to have him killed. Now, the devil does use people. He uses people, and he uses persecution to accomplish his murders But the Bible is clear that when a believer dies at the hands of antagonistic persecutors, that Satan is the one who is behind these killings. The people may do the killing, but Satan is the one behind it. Why do we say that? Because we clearly see this in Luke 22, where we read that behind the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council's plot to arrest Jesus and then to put him to death, behind it all was Satan. So we read... In Luke 22, verses 1 through 6, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Now watch this. And Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad, and they agreed to give him some money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. So what we read here, folks, is that Satan entered. He actually entered and he possessed Judas Iscariot for the purpose of hatching a plot to privately arrest Jesus apart from the crowd of people, apart from all the people because the Sanhedrin knew that Jesus was popular with the people and they might rebel against this. But that was the plan to arrest him privately and to move his execution along so that he would be put to death. But this doesn't mean that the devil has unlimited powers to kill anybody he wants to kill. Yes, he can take the lives of people, and he does it through persecution, but he doesn't have unwarranted, just unlimited power to do whatever he wants. I remind you that in the early chapters of the book of Job, when Satan accused God of only having devoted followers because, well, you treat them so well. Of course they're going to they're gonna worship you. Of course they're going to say they love you. But, Satan said to God, but listen, remove your hand of protection and allow some suffering into their lives and they will curse you to your face. They don't love you, God, for who you are. They love you for what you do for them. And so, initially God did permit Satan to cause suffering in Job's life by destroying some of his possessions and taking the lives of his children. But instead of cursing God, Job actually blessed God. He praised God. So Satan then told God, well, the reason that Job still believes in you is because he has his health 
He has his health. If you permit me, Satan said to God, to remove Job's health so that he physically suffers, then Job, he said, he's going to curse you to your face. He only cares about you because you've given him health. Remove that and he'll curse you. Now, here's the point that I want you to see. When God did permit Satan to touch Job's health, which the text says he did, he very definitely told him that he did not have permission to take Job's life. He couldn't do it. We read in Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he'll give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. God didn't give Satan permission to take the life of Job. So, we have to understand this. Although Satan has to get God's permission to take the life of anyone, there are times, though, when God, in his wisdom and his sovereign purposes, does allow the devil to use people to murder one of God's servants. That didn't happen with Job, but it does happen plenty of other times. And that's exactly what the devil hoped to do with the Apostle Paul. But in Paul's case, the Lord intervened and he used the Roman soldiers to rescue him. And you can be confident, folks, that the Lord will not let Satan take your life through persecution until the time that he has sovereignly ordained for you to die. This is why Jesus said these precious words to his disciples in Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you're more valuable than many sparrows. What precious truths are here. The Lord said that we don't need to be afraid of dying because no one, including Satan, no one can take your life apart from God's sovereign will. Even insignificant, relatively worthless sparrows can die apart from God's knowledge and his sovereign control. And we're so much more valuable to God Then sparrows, Jesus said, because we're his children. He's our father. So we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, especially death. Now, so far, Luke has told us about two ways that Satan tried to destroy Paul and his witness for Christ. First, by using slanderous lies to raise up an angry, out-of-control mob to seize him in the temple. And then secondly, by putting it into the hearts of this frenzied mob, the desire to kill Paul by beating him to death. Now, the third and the final way that Satan tried to eliminate Paul was by, number three, portraying Paul as an enemy of the government. We read in verses 33 and 34. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. And among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So what we read here is that upon reaching the scene of this riot, the first thing that the Roman commander did, he grabbed hold of Paul and just to protect him from this angry crowd. And then he commanded his soldiers to bind the apostle with two chains, probably two chains between two soldiers. And from this point on until the close of the book of Acts, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit through Agabus the prophet, as you'll recall, predicted what would happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Remember, Agabus took his belt. He said, the man who has this, this is what's going to happen. And he, he bound himself. And that's exactly what took place. After binding Paul with chains, the commander began asking the crowd of Jewish people who Paul was. What he had done to deserve Such treatment. But with all the confusion of people shouting this and shouting that, the commander just wasn't able to discover who Paul was or what he had done. And so he ordered him to be brought into the barracks where he planned to interrogate Paul in private and get to the bottom of what is going on here. So as Luke continues, he tells us what happened next. Verses 35 and 36. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence Of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. So as the soldiers were taking Paul to the barracks, 
what Luke tells us is they had to lift him up. They had to pick the poor man up and carry him in order to protect him from the angry crowd who were still intent on getting to Paul and doing violence to him so that they followed the soldiers all the while shouting away with him. What they meant by that is away with his life. Execute the guy. Kill him. You have the authority to do it. Put him to death. But upon reaching the top of the stairs just before entering the barracks, Paul, for the very first time, he speaks up. And he asks the commander for permission to say something to him. And it's in this exchange between Paul and the commander that we see a third way that Satan attacks believers and tries to destroy them. Verses 37 and 38 say, As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Well, just before they were supposed to enter the barracks of the fortress Antonio, Luke tells us that Paul turns to the commander and he asks for permission to speak to him. And when the commander hears Paul's voice, he's very surprised. Not because Paul said anything, but because what he said to him was in the Greek language. See, in that day and age, Greek was the language spoken by cultured people, educated people. But the commander had assumed that Paul was a common criminal, and ordinarily common criminals did not speak the Greek language. In fact, the commander actually had assumed that Paul was a criminal from Egypt, an Egyptian man who some years earlier had led a revolt of 4,000 men against the city of Jerusalem. Now, this Egyptian, folks, he was an infamous man because he was responsible for killing many people, and that would include Romans. But up to this point, he had escaped being caught, he had escaped being punished, and the commander thinks that Paul is this Egyptian and that he has finally apprehended this great enemy of the state. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Acts, explains a little about this Egyptian man and why he was so wanted by the Roman authorities. Here's what he writes. He said, The Egyptian was a false prophet who some years earlier led a group of his followers to the Mount of Olives. He proclaimed that the walls of Jerusalem would fall at his command and that the Romans would be driven out. Before that prophecy would come to pass, however, Roman troops led by Governor Felix arrived on the scene. They attacked the Egyptian and his followers and routed them. Several hundred were killed or captured, and the rest, including the Egyptian, vanished. Now, notice, if you look at verse 38, notice that Luke identifies the men who this Egyptian terrorist led had a name, had a label. They were called assassins. Now, you get that label for a real reason. They were called this because their technique of attack in which they assassinated people was to move in a crowd. They would mingle in a crowd. Nobody would suspect them. And then they had these daggers. And when nobody suspected them, they would stab their victims to death, which included Romans as well as Jewish people who were pro-Roman government. So it meant that this man, this Egyptian, and these assassins he led, they were responsible for killing many people in Jerusalem. And the commander has assumed that Paul was this Egyptian, but Paul immediately corrects him. Paul says, and we read in verses 39 and 40, but Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul standing on the stairs motioned to the people with his hand and when there was a great hush he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect saying. Now Paul explains that in spite of what the commander thinks he's not the Egyptian terrorist. The commander assumed he was but he's wrong. Rather he says I'm a Jew from the city of Tarsus in the region of Cilicia and Tarsus he says as the commander would have known is a very important city. It was known for its culture. It was known for its education. A leading university was located there and having established that he was not this Egyptian nor an assassin Paul we read begs he pleads with the commander to allow him permission to speak to the people which the commander grants. And Lord willing, next week we'll hear what Paul had to say to this crazed crowd that wanted to kill him. But what I want you to notice is that in assuming the worst about Paul, 
that he was this Egyptian assassin, an enemy of the Roman government, and assuming that the commander unwittingly had fallen for one of Satan's biggest lies, and that is that Christians are opposed to the government and that we are disloyal citizens and rebels against the government. Now, I realize that this commander, at least at this point, did not know that Paul was a Christian. But Satan certainly did. Satan certainly did. And he immediately put it into the heart of this commander that Paul must be an enemy of the state and someone who should be executed for murdering Romans. See, one of the lies that Satan propagates about believers in Christ is that we are a threat to the governments that rule over us. And he uses this lie to increase government-sanctioned persecution against Christians. This is why so many Christians have suffered, and they continue, we continue, to suffer at the hands of governments because the governments believe the lie that we as believers are a threat to them. You see this in communist countries, you see this in Muslim countries, you see this in other countries. This is why the New Testament is so clear in commanding Christians to be the very best citizens that we can be by submitting to the governments over us. We read in Romans 13, 1 through 7, and this is important that you understand this. This is the role of government. Here's what Paul said. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, Paul couldn't be any clearer. Governments have been established by God, he says, to protect those who do good by keeping its laws and to punish those who do evil by breaking its laws. That's the function of of government. So Paul's message is this, as Christians, we are to do good, we are not to do evil, we are to obey the laws of the land, we are to pay our taxes, we are to honor those in authority over us. Peter says essentially the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So as Christians, folks, we are to be the very best citizens in our nation. But Satan, being a liar, being a deceiver, he's convinced many governments over the years that Christians are the enemies of the state, that we are disloyal, that we are rebellious. And it's not by accident that this Roman commander, he just assumed that Paul was a criminal who should be arrested and executed for his Many crimes. This is exactly what Satan wanted and what he suggested to the mind of this Roman soldier to think about Paul. Once again, though, the Lord's will prevailed because while this Roman commander made a bad initial assumption, apparently he was a good and decent man, as were many Roman leaders. And recognizing that Paul wasn't this Egyptian terrorist, he did permit him to speak to the crowd, which we'll see what Paul had to say next week. But what we have learned today, what we've learned today is that the devil is a master at misunderstanding and misinformation to try to achieve his evil goal of destroying God's servants. And just as he tried to silence and destroy Paul, so he will try to do the same thing with you. As Peter said, we have an adversary who prowls about 
like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. But have courage because God is sovereign and he will not allow you to be persecuted or die outside of his will. But if you're not a Christian, then be careful of what you hear concerning Concerning Christians, be careful what you're hearing because, or what you're reading about them because Satan will try to convince you that they're all hypocrites. Every one of them. Not one of them is genuine. They're all hypocrites. Listen, don't listen to that. That's lies. Instead, consider one person and one person only and that's Jesus Christ and his claim on your life. Jesus Christ is God who became a man so that he could die on the cross and be judged in the place of sinners. He loves you, and because of this, He has made a way for you to get back to God so that you could be forgiven of your sins, you could be reconciled to Him. And that way is to look to Christ and place your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, recognizing that you are a sinner who deserves judgment. God in His mercy has judged Christ in the place of sinners. So turn to Christ. Place your faith in Him, repent of your sins, and experience the joy of being forgiven of all of your sins and to enter into a relationship with God through Christ. And if you want to talk to someone this morning, one of our pastors, about this very thing, then please see me as we close our service. And those who are elders here, I'm going to ask you if you'll come to the front as we close the service and just be available to speak to anyone who wants to speak to you. So let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. And we know, we say with Paul, that we know we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. And Lord, sometimes he uses us, believers, against our brothers and sisters in Christ. And these things ought not to be. I pray that you will take what we have learned today and apply it to our lives, that we would never slander one another, that we would not post things that are not true, that we would be careful. And if we have slandered people, Lord, may there be repentance and the work of asking forgiveness. We pray also that you'll help us to take courage that we would not be fearful people, fearful of being persecuted even unto death because we know that nothing happens outside of your will. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to be the the best citizens we can be. We understand that sometimes we have to disobey the governments of our nations if they tell us to do something that is contrary to what scripture says. But for the most part, Lord, that's not the case. So help us to be loyal citizens Help us to be respectful of our leaders, of our president, of our government leaders, and to stand out as people who are distinct from the world of unbelievers. Now, we also pray, Lord, for any who might be here or might be watching or listening to this, who may not know Christ, may, before the sun goes down today, may they call upon you to be their Lord and Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.